Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Good evening, my fabulous fans and flamers and fancy boys out there, all of our loving listeners who choose to tune into Dark Night of the Podcast. I want to take a moment to thank you and appreciate you, um, and I want to take a moment to introduce my beautiful co-host, Iowa native, <laughs> Troy Escamilla. Hi, Troy. Hey, what's up? How are you? Ah, oh, wonderful. How are you after your big transition? Yes, folks. That's that's the thing is a few, we're a few days off of schedule because I made a huge move cross country. I moved from Houston, where I've lived the last 11 years, back to good old Iowa. So I'm back in the Midwest, along with Roger. You're in Ohio, Iowa. People get him confused all the time, but we are much closer now. So hey, so yeah, I that's I made the move last weekend and have just been getting acclimated, getting situated, getting unpacked, getting organized. But I have definitely made time for this next episode, our our latest episode. I'm feeling kind of I'm feeling kind of lonely though, Roger, because our last two episodes we had some wonderful guests. We have we have, and again, I want to take a moment to just thank them. Um, Caitlin Newbury, my, my loving friend, Caitlin Newbury, who is a wonderful human being and a very talented actress. Uh, she popped in there two episodes ago. Um, and then last week, we were blessed to be in the audio presence <laughs> of, uh, of the stunning host of the Scream Queens podcast, Patrick. The one and only. The one and only. And he is just a fabulous, fabulous uh, fellow homosexual who really knows his shit. And uh, he, he introduced us to a wonderful piece of cinema. And I'm really thankful to him for that. So, yeah, it's, I think it's a nice, uh, nice change-up to kind of surprise our listeners with a guest every once in a while. And I think we're going to keep on doing it. Um, so, listeners, now and then I think we're going to just throw someone at you. You'll never know when it's coming, but we've got some good ones uh, on our radar. I'm really excited. But right now, Troy, it's been a second bef- uh, since we've really gotten a chance to sit down and just dissect a movie. You and me really getting into the meat and bones of it all, which is where we shine, honestly. Our chance to just go on and a rant on a tangent about a movie that's really caught our fancy, be it for entertainment factor or creative factor or just to pick it apart. Um, but I think we picked a title this week that is going to be quite the conversation piece. I, I do too. I do too. It's definitely much different than the last several films that we covered. It seems to have kind of a, a nice little um, following, uh, a, a nice little fan base. I mean, I posted about it on my Instagram and Facebook that um, – I was watching it and a lot of people responded and said that they love the movie, that it's one of their favorites. 
Uh, I just, I guess I was oblivious to the fact that it had that sort of following to it because it's a film that you'd never hear talked about uh, very rarely. It's definitely a, a title, like I said, that's just doesn't get brought up a lot. However, with that said, it's held in very, very high regard. So I, I, I'm kind of baffled that it isn't talked about more, but I, Got to watch it. I'd seen the last 15 minutes of this film, probably a good 15 or 20 minutes or 20, 20 minutes ago, 15 or 20 years ago. I'd never seen the whole, the things straight through. So getting to watch it straight through and putting all the pieces together this time around, even though I knew the ending because I saw the ending, it still was very impactful seeing it all put together as a whole, as disjointed and convoluted as a lot of it is. It was still very interesting to see it as a whole. So yeah, what film are we talking about? Because this was your pick, Roger. Yeah, this week, uh, guys, we have selected, I've selected to analyze the um, critically acclaimed, and I can't emphasize that enough, uh, masterpiece, I can't emphasize that enough either, um, 1973 uh, cerebral suspense thriller horror classic, Don't Look Now. Uh, and this film was directed by Nicholas Rogue, um, who has tons of, you know, uh, influential films under his belt. Uh, the Man Who Fell to Earth, The Witches, um, just an iconic career. And he is, um, I would say, as a director, he is blessed with the talents of uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie in the, the leading roles in this film, and they give uh, two just mind-blowing performances. I mean, these two are the central focus of the entire film, and they just run with it, uh, especially Sutherland, I would say, for a lot of these scenes, uh, whom, of course, we know from, again, tons of influential films. One specifically to mention, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I am confident we will be reviewing at some point uh, in the near future because it's a favorite of mine. Um, and I'm talking about the 78 one, obviously. The talent in this movie is just, it's its oozing from every frame. Everything about it is just superb. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Sutherland especially is the standout. Julie Christie is, is very enchanting in the film. Uh, she's not given, she's not giving, she's not given um, a lot to do compared to Sutherland, but when she's on screen, it's definitely, she, she definitely lights up the screen and, and has such a charismatic uh, screen presence. Mm-hmm. I also have to give props to um, Hillary Mason, who plays Heather, the blind uh, clairvoyant. Uh, she definitely is a scene stealer, I think. And just, yeah, it's, it's a small cast, but they, they really work well together. Yeah. And one thing, one thing to acknowledge about this film, I would say, is that um, a Sutherland's performance for being a, a product of the early '70s does not feel like it. Uh, it feels very uh, ahead of its time, uh, with the nuances and the natural delivery of the dialogue, and um, there's a there, there's a sloppiness to some of his dialogue at times when he's overwhelmed or when he's um uh, distracted he you know he, he knows how to uh, mumble his way or stutter his way through lines to give it a very natural real in the moment kind of feel and i really think that elevates his performance especially as he starts to grow deeper into the progression of the movie 
Uh, as, as his character responds to certain things, he just does a phenomenal job with his delivery. But yeah, the whole cast is great. And you're right, the character of Heather, in general, is very unique. Um, it has some very 70s, almost, tropes to it, in a way. Uh, her being blind, the contacts, and everything, the way, the look of it, it feels very of the era, but some of the moments uh, with that character, especially like her panic attacks, as you'll as you, the listeners, will learn more about as we go on, feel very kind of visceral and, again, real and, and haunting. And these moments, you know, I think in a way I almost think she's scarier than any uh, mass killer I can think of because she's just so creepy but believable in her just weird quirks. And there's something very disconnected and off about her. And you can't necessarily tell if she's like a friend or a foe, along with the other sister as well. Um, but it's because of this acting and some amazing editing, I have to say. The timing of some of the editing choices within this film also give this whole movie a whole feeling of, can you trust anyone? Yes, yes. The editing is definitely very, I don't even know the word for it, but it's its its frantic uh, at times. It's just kind of unlike anything you were seeing during this time period film-wise. I think that this film... Definitely, in many regards, was way ahead of its time. Uh, editing choices, cinematography choices, performance choices, direction choices, uh, lots of things made this film, or make this film, probably one of the more influential uh, films of the 70s, even though, as we mentioned, it doesn't really get brought up as as much as some of the other you know, big horror films from the 70s, such as you know, The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Carrie, all these other films that were coming out, Suspiria. However, this came out before them, and I, you can definitely see the influence uh, of the, from this film. Yeah, and I do think one of the things about this movie to be acknowledged right off the bat and why it maybe has um, aged differently from some of those titles, because I definitely don't think in the sense of quality or in, in, this, in the sense of overall... Um, just uh, value this movie has. This I wouldn't say this movie is not on par with the titles you mentioned. If, even if in some ways, maybe even superior in some ways, uh, in the sense of the craftsmanship that is at play with this film, I do think, though, they made a very bold choice of um, making a movie that, while I would have to categorize this as a horror film, within certain aspects of it, as which are touched upon very lightly from time to time. There's a supernatural element hinted at with a, a character and their connection to the events unfolding, uh, but it's very elegantly played. It's very subtle, and I think because of that, it's really hard to give this film a specific genre category. I mean, it's a horror film just because of the events that transpire you know, culminating up to the finale. But it's so much more than just a horror film. I mean, it's so much more. It, there, it's an art film. At the end of the day, it's a beautiful artistic piece of cinema. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Uh, it it's a slow burn. There are long stretches of the film where it seems like, if you're not paying attention, that nothing is really happening. It's just Donald Donald Sutherland meandering the the, the sidewalks and tunnels of uh, Venice with nothing really happening. Again, unless you're paying attention. 
the film really, you know, one of the one of the main themes of the film is grief and overcoming grief and how grief can make you make decisions that are not necessarily the best best decisions or the healthiest decisions but you're kind of forced into those decisions because the grief is overwhelming and you don't know how to handle it um and there is like you said the supernatural element that threads through the film that very much is the the, the idea of psychic ability clairvoyance being able to uh see into the future or see your fate because as the film ends we realize that Donald Sutherland's character throughout the film has been really witnessing his premonitions of what his fate is going to be and what led him there. And there are so many points in the film where he could have easily uh, chosen a different path and the, and the film would have ended differently. But again, it's the grief and the, the not uh, adequately dealing with the death of their daughter that drives him to keep pursuing what he pursues and ultimately leads to his fate. <laughs> uh, but let's get, because, you know, now we're getting into the plot details. So let's just get right into the, into the film and, and what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the movie opens, uh, honestly, the, from the first shot, it really sets the mood of what this film is going to be like, which is solemn. <laughs> this movie it is, a, it is not necessarily a movie that oozes joy or happiness. It's about a lot of sad things about loss and, as you said, grief and coping with loss. And uh, what one consistent throughout the whole film, both visually as well as in the audio, is the usage of water or the incorporation of water. And that's something that's really important. And they make a really strong choice to open this film just on a shot of rain. Uh, coming down and hitting these puddles and you hear it and you see it and it immediately kind of puts that in your mind, that gray, dreary rainstorm. And and that carries through uh, the whole course of the film, that dreariness. Also, the audio is a, is a huge element of this movie and the, it's some of the best usage of audio and sound effects I've, I've ever heard in a film. Um, and as you get the shot of the rain coming down, you start to hear a man's voice humming, and it blends into this really beautiful dissolve into the shot of what well, you can't really tell what it is, but it, you eventually come to find out it's sunlight coming through lace, lace curtains. A very subtle choice, very artistic choice, really strong start for the opening of the movie. You know this is going to be an artsy piece. Um, but the audio is really surreal right off the bat, uh, and you get this really poorly played piano music that comes up, uh, and it sounds like a child playing like a clunky piano, and it's just a really smart choice for the sequence where you see these two siblings, a brother and a sister, playing in a, in a lawn, and the, the, the girl, Christine, is wearing a very prominent red rain slicker. And this is very important, and it's established right away. This adorable blonde running through these wet, rainy hills with this red ball and this red plastic rain jacket. It's very important uh, that that jacket comes into play now because you see it over the course of the whole film. Yeah, and water, yes, like you mentioned, water and the color red are huge motifs in the film. What ends up happening is... We're introduced to Donald Sutherland, who is uh, John Baxter and his 
wife, Laura Baxter, played by Julie Christie. They are inside their their estate, their their large house, just kind of chilling out. He's he's doing some work. She's reading a book, trying to find the answer to one of their daughter's questions. The daughter asks a question about if the Earth is round, then how come lakes are flat or something? And again, pl- playing into this whole water idea. Uh, the kids are outside playing. It's not raining, which is kind of interesting because the little girl has a raincoat on. She's dressed in a rain slicker, rain boots, but it's not raining out at all. It looks a little dreary, but it's not raining. And then the choice to make the raincoat red when what color are raincoats typically yellow? But in this film, it's a very deep, bright red. And the little boy is playing outside. The little girl is throwing a ball into the um, into this pond. And she's going to retrieve the ball and she, she does it a couple times and she's carrying around this, what is it? It's like a army doll or something that talks. So you hear, you hear subtly like this doll voice. It's real creepy. She's carrying it around and it's saying stuff. And it's like this robotic, like, do you want to do today? It's, it's pretty creepy, but inside the parents are kind of oblivious to what's going on. But there's this moment where Donald Sutherland's character is drinking a glass of, of of wine and he drops the glass. And at the same time he drops the glass, the little boy runs over a large piece of glass and falls off his bike. Uh, again, it's like it's right away starting with all these little things that are going to th- thread throughout the film. Because if you pay attention, like we said, water is huge. The color red is huge. Glass breaking, glass shattering is very prominent in the film. And it, all, all of these things, when, when they come together, you realize that they're foreboding and something is going to happen. And what ends up happening is their daughter, Christine, somehow the, one of the times she throws the ball into the, the pond, she must fall in and drowns. And right away, we are kind of given this little hint that Donald Sutherland's character must have some extrasensory perception because he doesn't really, he's inside. He's not paying attention to anything that's going on outside, but there's this moment where he just shoots straight up from his chair and just darts outside. And his wife is like, what's, what's the matter? What's the matter? He's like, no, I just, it's nothing, nothing. So he gets this feeling that something has happened. He, he already knows something has happened. So he runs out to the pond and finds his, his daughter has drowned and he pulls her body out of the pond. And there's the kind of the iconic scene. If you, if you Google don't look now, 1973, it's one of the, one of the more prominent stills that pop up is when he's, you know, hugging her dead body in, you know, entrenched in this red raincoat, just in the, the scowl of grief is on his face. It's pretty powerful. And he just lets out this guttural howl. It's very haunting. Yeah. I mean, the whole, first of all, I just want to state for listeners who maybe haven't viewed this film or don't really know a lot about this film. I think this is one of those movies that it's important. You watch it twice. I think it's rewarding if you watch it twice. I'll I'll put it that way because I mean, we're going to be talking all throughout this whole review about the little details that, you know, if he would have known, if he would have seen, if he would have acknowledged this or this or known exactly what he's capable of, Um, because it's an interesting approach. The fact that he never even really knows exactly what he possesses or what skills he may or may not have. But if he knew the warning signs, so much would be avoided. But one of the really interesting things 
with this whole sequence is he cuts his hand on this glass and he's looking at these photo stills uh, through a projector of this stained glass church that he's going to be working on and blood drips on it. And this right here, you get a really strong example of some of the interesting cut choices they use in this film to amplify moments and distort moments and really just play with like your sensory overload. Um, and, and just really kind of, mm-hmm. it kind of takes your breath away watching these sequences because they are just uh, so stimulating. This, this moment example, as we're talking, you know, when he finds her body, a, not only does he give a just animalistic, acting performance that is just haunting it's it's really it's it is filled with grief it's terrifying and you can tell that he's just shutting down this 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 man is not handling this you know the whole thing finding his daughter pulling her up out of the water screaming for her he goes to run across the grass through the mud and slips and falls and he's just grunting trying to get his wife's attention he tries giving her mouth to mouth she's obviously dead and it's just one of the first of many scene-stealing moments from Sutherland, but they're cutting it back and forth with the the still on the projector with the light coming through where his blood starts to, like, morph and take on this very, like, fantastical kind of psychedelic element where it's just um, warping and and, and changing hues and it, it, it just adds to the whole moment it makes the whole moment feel so almost trippy it's very of the era but it really really just amplifies the whole thing and it's such a a, a unique choice to make uh with the edits here to cut away from this performance to keep cutting back to this but it really i think was just bone chilling this whole sequence bone chilling what about you yeah, I agree. There's definitely interesting choices made. I, I do love the fact that they, as he's the, the whole pulling out of the daughter is done in this very dramatic, overly dramatic slow motion, um, slow motion where he's pulling her out of the water. Uh, and that just adds to the, the, the feeling that the dread, the, the, it just heightens the emotional impact of the, of the, of the moment. And again, a very interesting choice to keep cutting to that slide of the church with the blood just, streaming and going in all in different directions around the, around the slide of the, of the picture and stuff. It's also interesting that they don't really give you a lot of time to focus on the mother's reaction, right? Mothers are the ones that are generally, you know, in, in film or just in general thought of being the the primary nurturer and the ones that are going to deal with grief maybe the in in a more difficult exaggerated way. But we don't really see we don't really get to see much of Laura Julie Christie's reaction to her daughter's death. There is a split second, literally a split second, where she walks out of the house and she, she sees her husband holding the, the, the dead child, and she lets out a, a scream. But it's immediately like the screams cut. It's cut. It cuts away to a drill drilling in a church. So we really don't get to see a lot of her reaction to the actual death of the child because now what happens is it must be a couple months later and they are in venice italy now because john has taken a job to re um rejuvenate a 16th century church so they are staying in venice while he does this and if you think about water (laughs) being a motif in the film, 
I guess it makes sense that there was no better place to set this film than Venice because it is streets of water. Water is in every shot of the film. There's water, water, water. So it's like a constant reminder to at least John of the fact that his daughter drowned. Like he's surrounded by what killed his daughter at all times. And it becomes very uh, prevalent in the film that this is becoming an issue for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the as soon as we get to Venice, the setting is just all-consuming in the most gl- glorious way possible. Well, it's creepy. I here, Here's the thing. I've never been to Venice. I, I always assumed Venice would be kind of a bustling like tourist hub, that it would be kind of busy. This Venice in this film is creepy as fuck. It's a place that I would not want to go. <laughs> it's constantly isolated. There's nobody ever on the streets. These dark sideway sidewalks that lead into these tunnels under built. No, this was creepy as fuck. It just gives the film the that unsettling feeling, that sense of dread throughout the whole film because of the location and how it's shot. The cinematography in this film is ex- extremely well done. Oh my god. It's it's some of the some of the best of the era and it's done in a way that I think captures the tone of this movie, which is a pretty hard movie I honestly feel to capture this kind of tone to begin with. Uh they do it flawlessly. Flawlessly. Well, here's the here's the thing, yeah. If you if you're in if you're interested in filmmaking and and whatnot and you kind of want to see a f- yeah, because a lot of times people are confused about what cinematography is. Like if you talk to somebody that's not real into film, doesn't know much about film, I've run into people that don't, don't, don't they don't they don't know what cinematographer they don't know what a cinematographer does. They don't realize that there's someone that is actually shooting the film that's not the director. What I kind of tend to see is a lot of people think that the director is the one that's shooting the film, which in some cases it is, but 99% of films have a separate camera person, a person that specializes in cameras, using lighting and using the right lenses and the right um, angles and camera shots. So my point is, if you want to watch a film that, definitely utilize the cinematography in a way that enhances, like you just said, the tone of the film and creates an atmosphere, an uneasy atmosphere. It's this film. It's this film. Oh yeah. And I think one thing to say that really proves it is the fact that as we mentioned earlier, uh, as the story evolves, um, first example being, you don't see a lot of key events happening. You don't see, Christine fall into the water. You don't see pivotal things that occur that really cause the story to move in the direction it moves. There's a point where uh, Laura faints. The first time she faints, you don't even know what happens. It just picks up right afterwards. Things like this. They make strong choices of not letting the viewer see everything that I think we expect to see things in a very linear way. And that be spoon-fed certain things as the viewer. And with this, they make the strong choice of not letting us see certain things. And that only plays with our senses more. And because of the way this film is shot, and because of the way this film is edited, it proves you don't need these things to tell the story, especially when it's handled by experts of the craft, such as this team here that made this movie just something beautiful and and a complete mind fuck because it really is a mind fuck well let's be honest on paper 
this script is not that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not that deep. It's basically a story about parents that are grieving that go to Venice and weird shit happens. It's not that it's not that complicated of a script. It's not that deep. It's actually based on a short story by Daphne DeMere, who wrote The Birds that Alfred Hitchcock's film is based off of. Uh, it, it, it's a short story. It's like 20 pages long. So the film is not that the script on paper would not look that or would not be that intriguing, I don't think. What makes the film intriguing is all the technical aspects that brought the script to life, the cinematography, the direction, the color choice, everything, everything else, the sound, the performances, give this film sort of a, a, a an uneasy layer of mystery. Yeah, a, a layer of mystery that I think in the hands of a lot of other filmmakers just wouldn't even be thought of approaching it with that, you know... Uh, no, because there's so many there's so many little small subtle details yeah. in this film that that are just you have like I said I think you are right when you say watch the film twice. I watched it three times and upon the third viewing I was still catching things that I did not see the first two times. Uh but after after we find out that John and Laura are, are in Venice and he's restoring this old church, there is a scene where they go to a restaurant for lunch. Uh, and the restaurant is, there's a draft coming in. And so John gets up to close the, one of the windows because he says the restaurant's cold. And at the same time, a, the door, a door blows open and blows some debris into the restaurant. And there's a two elderly women sitting at a table near John and Laura. And one of them gets something in her eye and she's like, Oh no, I got something in my eye. So they get up to try to leave. And she's all disoriented because she has something in her eye. Laura gets up to help the 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 old ladies and she goes over there to them and she's like oh let me help you get something out of your eye and what we come to find out is this these are the characters of Wendy and Heather I love these two yeah they they are again I loved the 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 fact that you said you don't know if they are friend or foe because right. you really don't uh, there is like this air of are they good are they nuts are they what's their intention you don't really know their motivations right off the bat the direction has a lot of key little things happen too uh little sequences little shots they're always present they're always hovering and that only makes it more suspicious but a lot of times when you see them it looks like they're just like waddling by and i i first of all i do feel like this is you and i in another life like you and i out in venice having the time of our lives I'm blind, <laughs> I'm a psychic, and I'm seeing shit here and there, and uh, we're just enjoying our time until you get some shit in your eye. Um, and I think the whole approach of having Laura, who is very um, affected by the loss of the child, clearly, having her immediately get up and offer to help, it's just such a smart way to introduce the kind of person she is. She's this kind-hearted soul. Uh, she's got a sweet, naive way about her and she's very affected by things that are going on so you at times almost question her stability and her sanity but you can't tell if it's just her and this kind of nature that she has or if she's actually going through something it's also mentioned that she's on medication for i'm assuming depression there's a lot you know a lot of layers to these characters because the cast is small but what we find out is that heather is blind and she has those milky eyes um, that are kind of city of the living dead kind of eyes. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of 
creepy off-putting. Not that, you know, I'm not saying people that have that conditioner, but I'm saying in this film it very much is because there's a lot of super close-ups of just her eyes. Yeah, and at times they're almost like animated. It looks like they're kind of like swirling. They're terrifying, those eyes. They are. But we find out she's a psychic because when Laura's helping uh, Wendy, uh, Heather all of a sudden says, you're so sad, but you don't need to be because she she's happy. And Laura's like, what are you talking about? She's like, your daughter. I see your daughter. She was sitting next to you and your husband. And she wants you to know that she's really she's really happy. There's no need to be sad. She's laughing. She wants you to know that everything's okay. And I see her and she has beautiful blonde hair and she's wearing that red slicker. And right away, Laura just like freaks out okay. and just is like pretty much faints. Yeah. Because how would this old lady that just you run into a restaurant know this? And understandably so that she would be affected because the woman approaches it with such a... It's just like, (laughs) oh, yes, I'm seeing your daughter. She's so happy. Like, there's no, like, pre-warning. I'm going to, you know, have a conversation with your dead child. She just jumps right into it. And I think, uh, like, earlier when I said that, that her character is almost scarier to me than like a lot of the killers that we see on screen. The way that they play her in this is just very, um, kind of makes my skin crawl. She's always got this like smirk on her face and her gray eyes are just always staring off, but staring straight at you. They do a lot of shots of her just like looking dead into the camera. And she's just, um, she's always got this like pleasant, gentle way about her, but it always feels like there's something more to it. And it, uh, it, it's a really, it's a strong character. She adds a lot to the story for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the character. It's, it's a very creepy, memorable character. Uh, and you find out to, towards the end of the film, what their intentions really are, or do you? That's the thing. So Laura goes back to the table and as she's getting ready to sit down to join John, she faints and falls face first Onto the table in a very violent way. All of the glass, again, breaking glass. All the glasses, champagne glasses, fall on top of her and shatter. It's pretty dramatic and pretty looks pretty painful. However, she didn't get a scratch on her. <laughs> uh, even though all these glasses broke on top of her head, she, she pretty much makes it without a scratch. Uh, because she's in the hospital the next scene. And she's perfectly fine. And she actually tells John about the sisters and the fact that they told her about Christine and he pretty much is skeptical from the first second. He's like, our daughter's dead. This is bullshit. You there. Don't listen to them. You know, she's pretty, she's believes she believes that these women really are who they, what they say they are. Yeah. And, and leading up to the whole fainting sequence, uh, this whole scene in the restaurant is really well done. But they do some really detailed camera work because, again, John, you can tell, is starting to kind of sense things. And again, when you revisit it, you see all these little moments, but they almost do a that's so raven from the eye pupil around his head, like do like a rotation where he realizes something's off. And I was like, oh, God, what if that's so raven was actually inspired by this movie because that's about psychics too we can only hope but there's some really great camera work leading up to this whole fading sequence and one thing i think for the horror aficionados out there for the lovers of the genre this not being a necessarily violent horror in the sense of body count one thing this movie does great is it finds the horror in 
real kind of average everyday situations and events. For example, this table fainting sequence, they linger on it. And it's violent. The whole table flips. The glass, the audio, the glass is shattering. Um, uh, John grabs the table and has to pull it back as she just goes limp on the ground. And they, sh they use a lot of cuts and um, kind of images of the aftermath to really make it feel like this kind of big moment when it could have easily just been this kind of toss-away thing. They do that with a lot of things. They also have a sequence on some scaffolding later that is, again, not necessarily a horror sequence, but it's terrifying just from concept, and we'll get into that when we get to it. But it's just uh, something I want to acknowledge. This movie, while it doesn't have necessarily a lot of blood or high body count, it sure managed to keep me on the edge of my seat at times when I didn't even anticipate it. Uh, you're right, because a typical feigning scene in a film is just the character just kind of collapses onto the ground. That's the end of it. But this one is, like I said, pretty violent, pretty violent. And there's strings, like really beautiful. They use a lot of strings in the score, and they use them well. And it, they're really like swelling over the sequence. They just make sure it's a big moment. They do it well. Um, so she, when she wakes up, I thought it was interesting that she's watching a bunch of children playing in, in the hospital, in the room next to her. And you really get to see just how much Laura has, I think, this kind of connection with children implying the connection with her daughter. She has a yearning to fill that void. She's still very affected. Uh, again, another little detail. There's so many little details, but I love it. Yeah. So she tells John that she feels better than ever now. Uh, she's really feeling great, that she is excited at the uh, prospect that the fact that their daughter her, their daughter is, is still with them. So she's completely buying into this whole psychic thing. Uh, and you can tell there's definitely a huge change in her demeanor and personality. She definitely seems a lot more uh, happy and uh, normal, dare I say. On the way home or on the walk back to their hotel room, there is a very subtle moment. And I did not catch this the first time I watched it. I caught it the second time. And then the third time I had to turn the volume up to really make sure I understood what was being said. It's Again, it's very subtle. On the way home, they encounter some police officers or some people, and they find out, again, it's very subtle, you have to pay attention, that there's been a homicide, that there's been a body that's been found in this canal. And again, it's it's a moment that could have been, or maybe should have been in, in a different movie, would have been, there's the word I'm looking for, would have been more in your face. Like, oh my God, there's a body in the lake. Let's pull it out, which happens later. But this first time, again, it's very subtle. You have to listen. You have to listen to what the cop says in the background. And then what, what she says, she says it very quietly. She's like, oh, there was a homicide. Very quiet, uh, very understated. But it is the start of us realizing that one of the subplots of the film, as minor as it is, is that there is a killer that is loose in Venice and is killing people and, and putting their bodies in the canals of Venice. Very subtle. It's a subplot that it almost, again, if you're not paying attention, you won't catch it, which is very interesting because it really comes into play the final five minutes of the film. But it's not, I, I was just boggled about as far as it's not in your face. It's not like hammered as a major subplot, even though it is. They sell this movie as a couple 
getting over the loss of a child and the whole psychic thing is really like you think you're watching something that's about are they connecting with the daughter um, and the pursuit of making connection with the daughter. The fact that they choose to keep the homicide aspect so minor is in the long run a massive payoff and a genius approach when you and you're right would have been approached differently in another movie. But this movie knows the story it's trying to tell. And it's very smart in that fa- uh, in its favor, you know? So, um, yeah, the, 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 and you do get more of that, though. Again, it's spoon-fed to you here and there. It's not the core aspect of the film. You are uh, pr- uh, introduced, though, to the uh, the priest in this film, who is a bit of a... He's a, he's a pretty pivotal character, and they do a really good job of giving you an idea of who this guy is right off the bat without even really knowing a lot about him. Uh, you know a lot about him. You know, like in the way that they they cut and they film it, you get glimpses at, is at his rings, at his gold crosses, his fur-lined coat, his leather gloves. This is a an individual who uh, definitely has wealth. Uh, it's often hinted at that he doesn't really care all that much about the church that they're renovating, and uh, that's very heavily implied through a lot of the dialogue and the side conversations that you hear, and just the way he's played. Again, another great performance, though uh, not as major as some of the other characters. Yeah, no, he's very uh, very stern, very serious, very... Uh, he definitely fits the priest bill pretty well. And yeah, he doesn't. He seems kind of not not interested really in the, in the church renovation. It's not it's not something that's up his alley. He's he's along for the ride, but it's not something that he is totally uh, concerned himself with. There's also the scene where uh, Laura wants to stop at this other church and light candles for Christine, their daughter, which again kind of shows that she is. Uh, at it, it, it a different place now than she was with her grief. She's able to now to come to terms with the fact that her daughter is physically dead, but may v- spiritually still be with them. Because I don't feel like Laura 10 minutes ago would have lit candles in her daughter's memory because she really wasn't accepting of the fact that her daughter was actually deceased. But since she had this encounter with these two psychics, she is more accepting of that fact, but also wants to be spiritual. She she makes the point to say she wants to go to this church to say a prayer, uh, and then she lights these six candles for their daughter, whom presuming it was because her daughter was is six years old. But I think it's funny that John is like, I hate this church. This is I hate this church. I mean, yeah, for working in a church, he's definitely not somebody who's. I don't think he's doing it for his faith. You know, he's doing it for the the pay. Um, and that's uh, that's his job, you know. It's what he does. But he doesn't strike me as a, as a, someone who's uh, very religious whatsoever. And it seems, you know, that she up to this point wasn't necessarily either. And he's pretty taken aback by it. But he kind of gives uh, accepts this change in her in her approach uh, because it seems to bring out a really positive energy from her. So he's kind of like curious and inquisitive but kind of letting her do her thing and he appeases her at the church um and it's funny because when they do connect with the priest as mentioned um he does at one point ask her if she's a christian um and she gives this really adorable response where she says i don't know but i'm kind of animals and children which in my 
almost I take as uh, to a certain way, like, well, I follow all the fucking rules either way. So, you know, like, but she seems to be kind of smitten with this, uh, the fact that he asked her this, because she's kind of taking everything as like a sign now. It's all a sign. It's a sign that Christine is with them in presence and all of these, everything's kind of going the way it should. And I think she's reading into it quite a lot. They get back to the hotel and they are now getting ready to go to dinner. These these people eat a lot. It's either they're in a, either they're in a church or they're at a restaurant. I mean, it's literally two places. I mean, they're in Ve- <laughs> they're in Venice. Would you not be if you were in Venice? Wouldn't you be taking in the fine cuisine? <laughs> I guess so. But literally every scene, they're in a restaurant. I'm like, how many times? Have you eaten <laughs> or on a boat. <laughs> or on a boat. But they're they're getting ready to go to dinner now, and she takes a bath, and he is working on something. <laughs> and then now he takes a shower and comes out and he's naked. And there's a scene where he goes and sits at his little workstation and like the hotel maid comes in and he's sitting at his desk, butt ass, butt ass naked. And she's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, we get <laughs> kind of a breast and ass. We get Bush. We get more ass. We get a lot of ass, but we get what we end up getting is one of the most infamous sex scenes in film history. Oh, I, I'm well. First of all, I have to say I like that he sits. He was sitting naked at his at his art studio because that's real life. Like I'm sorry, if that was me and I was with you know my significant other, well, we're nobody can see, but we're both sitting here naked. Oh, I like, neither of us had pants on. We're just, <laughs> <laughs> and it ain't doing us any good. No, but God, it sure is comfortable. But no, yeah, it, it, there's so many little things they do over the course of this movie that feel very like natural. Help really develop these characters, make them feel superhuman. They're both very flawed but um i loved that he was just sitting there butt ass naked and then the 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 maid comes in and he kind of just like waves her off he's not even phased by it it's very relatable i loved it but um this sex scene man i mean like let's be real i'm gonna say probably a third of our review is gonna be just you and i getting in deep with this sex scene because it it lives up to its infamy yeah, it's pretty explicit, especially for 1973. That's what I kept thinking. Is nowadays it doesn't. Nowadays you would see this like on American Horror Story on FX, uh, but back in 73 it was pretty boundary pushing. I mean, you get to. See, I mean, they're taking care they of this. You get to see him eating <laughs> out. You get to see all the different positions. I mean, talk about positions, Ariana Grande. They do all of the positions. Uh, is by far the longest. And most graphic. Inner, it's intercut <laughs> with them, like at the aftermath of them getting dressed and changing, uh, getting dressed for dinner. So like during the sex scene, it's the editing is cutting to showing them after sex getting dressed. It's a really weird choice, but it works, I guess. I w- but you know what? I, I'm going to say this. And maybe it's because, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't really think Donald Sutherland's attractive. Julia Christie's beautiful, but I'm gay. So it wasn't really doing anything for me. What I'm, I guess my thing is I did not find this sex scene very arousing at all. Uh, to me, it's, it was just like very, uh, what's the word? Animalistic. It was just like, I really didn't feel a lot of, like passion or like intimacy or, or love between the two of them. It just felt very, um, I I feel like it was very symbolic of them letting something go. 
Yes, you that's know? what I'm saying. It wasn't really. I know what I really understand the fact that it was definitely, particularly for Laura, like her releasing the grief mm-hmm. in this very animalistic, carnal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she's in it just as much as he is. I mean, oh, yeah. She's, she's riding him, she's doing all this shit. But I wasn't, I don't feel like it was. Like, it's not a sexy scene to me at all. Like, I'm not like, oh, this is hot. Oh, wow. I just wasn't getting that vibe from it. I almost took it as, I mean, honestly, again, going back and watching another time, I almost, for being as graphic as it is and animalistic, as we said, as it is, um, I, I actually look at it as kind of a, as a very sweet moment. Um, it starts with her running her fingers on his back and it's, you see the whole pursuits, you see it unfold. And it's something I think the two of them have really needed. Um, and as it unfolds this whole moment, it is intercut with the aftermath, as you said, but it it shows, I think really what this interaction did for them. Uh, I think it's something that they needed. And you see the two of them making a lot of eye contact. You see them kind of go into their private space and she's, Kind of, I think she's like a lipstick tube and she's like biting on it. Like kind of like she, uh, she's got the afterglow and he sits there and has a drink afterwards and you see them both reflecting on it. And I think it's really clear that this, it was animalistic, um, but it was also um, a, a gentle at first, you know, it was really something like they, they chose to take the step to do this together to release this. Um, I don't think it was meant to be, like so much a, a hot, sexy, sex scene is just a wild. I don't know because I've read, I remember a couple of, um, and you could probably find them if you use Google. This was years ago though. I remember a couple of those like Buzzfeed things or whatever, where they do, Oh, the hottest, the hottest sex scenes in film history. And this was always like number two or three or even one. And I'm like, I don't think that this sex scene was hot. Graphic does not equate to hot, in my opinion. I do feel like the word to describe the sex scene in the in the grand scheme of the film is definitely release. This was a release for both of them, more so Laura than him, because uh, John still really hasn't, I don't think, let go of the 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 grief or the guilt that he may feel about their daughter's death. But for Laura, this was definitely a release, you know, and. There is a, and for her, it even to me, even is it kind of a sense of for her kind of like forgiving him because when you, there's a scene later on in the film where she actually says to him, you're the one that let her go play by the, by the pond. You let her do it. So almost like blaming him for her death. She's letting him in literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah. So I think that before this is after the scene, but I feel like this was her just kind of release and, and kind of offering forgiveness or, or in her mind, forgiving him for what he did. But yeah, definitely graphic, definitely a long sex scene. Very long to talk about. It's an entire string and piano arrangement worth of sex scene it is a the whole length of a song it keeps going and just when you think it's about to finish they're suddenly 
in a different they position. Posi- they switch positions. Switching my positions for uh, At one point, she's nibbling on his tongue. Uh, and then I think we do, like, let's just, if we're going to get, a, if we're going to do it, let's do it now and just approach the elephant in the room, which is Donald Sutherland's mustache, which <laughs> is, is it hot? Is it not? You know, ask the gays and they're going to debate you on it because either way, some of them love it. Some of them hate it. Where do you stand? It's a 70s porn stash. I'm not a big fan of those. I'm not a big fan. Obviously, I'm a fan of facial hair. Look at me, but I'm not a fan of just a mustache. I never have been. Uh, So, and again, I personally don't come for me gays that have a crush on Donald Sutherland. I don't think he's that attractive, particularly in this film. To me, he looks like Big Bird. I, I don't know. So <laughs> I, I'm not like attracted to him. However, you know, I can see, I, I know some people are into those mustaches. Some people have those daddy complexes that are going to look at Donald Sutherland and be like, ooh, I, I do think he was uh, he was perhaps more attractive to me in Ordinary People. But this film, I'm not feeling it. I get it. Though he does have beautiful blue eyes. I yeah, can't. Deny I mean, he's that. a well, no. He's a great actor. Mm-hmm. Just physically, just not my cup of tea. Oh, I get uh, it. I hear it. Julie Christie is absolutely stunning in this film. Yeah. Can we just yeah. can we just put that out there? Oh, She's absolutely stunning. Absolutely gorgeous. And by the end of the sex scene, I I do have to admit that I feel that it is so long and graphic. I I feel like I made passionate love to both Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. As because it's, you see so much of it, uh, but it, she is lovely. So I mean, if I'm, I'm surprised. Here's the thing: is what I was thinking is I'm surprised that they agreed to do this and get this graphic with it. Uh, particularly Julie Christie. I mean, she just, if you don't know, she she just was fresh off an Oscar, a Best Actress Oscar win for uh, for Darling a couple years before. Uh, so it's not like she was some unknown actress hurting for attention. I mean, she literally won an Oscar like three years before this film was released. Uh, so I was like, wow, I'm surprised that she, I mean, she, she shows tits. She shows puss. I mean, Bush. everything ass. Um, yeah. And she's know, looking good I'm doing surprised. it. But uh, hey, yeah, I guess when the material is, is as, rich as what this turned out to be i, I mean it, if you're going to do nudity do nudity in a film like this do it like this yeah. yeah 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 uh next sequence we cut to is you do finally see them going off to dinner um and you, you finally really get to start to see the alleys of venice at night and they are a completely different entity my, yeah my ass would be inside oh my god i would not leave my room the um creepy the way that, again the way they film this the vibe of this whole town is that everybody is suspect like even the townspeople looking out their windows and everything i don't trust anybody i don't trust anyone <laughs> but the, there but there's never here's the thing there is never anybody on the street ever ever another it's those two it's another it's thing always, playing into the whole fact that there's murders going on yes well well here we go after dinner they are walking home and they they get separated, but they get lost and they go down to this one tunnel and there's like, it ends at water, of course, and there's rats, right? And Julie Christie's Laura sees the rats and she's like, oh, hell no, I'm getting out of here. So she runs back up to the, the main street and they get separated for a moment. And while John is kind of walking to try to find her, he sees her like on this bridge, you know, not 
he, she can, he can see her, but they're not close. And all of a sudden you hear this like guttural scream, like this horrible, like, like somebody's getting murdered, which hello, they are. And every people start opening their windows. And then John, this is the first time it happens. And it's very quick. You have to be paying attention, but he is looking to the direction of where the screen came from. And right at the, right at the edge of this corner, you see a little figure in a red raincoat. You see it for a split second and then it takes off running and he's, he's looking and he's kind of, did I just see what I thought I saw? Uh, but then the commotion of everything gets, gets him distracted, but it's the kind of the first time you see this figure and it's jarring. And you're like, as we, as the audience are like, what the fuck is this? Is it, is that his daughter? And is what, what is this now? Because it's exact. It's a, it's a red raincoat. It's a little figure in a red raincoat in the middle of the night in Venice. So hello, what are the? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then it is a very distinctive waddle. I have to point out uh, the trot. This figure runs it with a scurry that is very off-putting. Um, but yeah, for for the amount that they feed it to you, if, it's, if you have not seen this movie, um, this is an ongoing theme that carries through. It's the, the visual of this red raincoat and it really comes into play. Um, and uh, I do think they do a really good job of just giving you just enough to, to throw you off. You know, you don't, it's not like you see it time after time after time. You see little hints of it here and there. Oh yeah. There it's not, it's definitely not overutilized at all. It's very, it's done very minimalistly and it's just kind of at the moments that almost moments you least expect it. There are moments because there are moments in this film where I really expected this little raincoat bitch to show up and she doesn't. It's, it's the moments that you kind of don't expect her to appear that she does. Yeah. 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 And again, playing into the idea I said earlier of moments where they find the horror and the scenarios that maybe you don't always anticipate it, which does kind of cause this movie to like step into the horror genre territory more and more a lot of these simple moments they do use the location and that whole disorienting feeling of being in a town you maybe don't know it very well and it's dark and it's shadowed and and they really managed to make this whole sequence the first sequence in the alleys at night uh very suspenseful it's a, it's a great sequence it is the next day we are witnessed to John putting up, he's at work. He's at the, 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 um, church that he is, uh, renovating. He's putting up the statue. Laura's down below kind of watching him and the two sisters happen to walk by. These two sisters are everywhere. They just show up everywhere, everywhere. If it's, it's basically the two sisters and John and Laura on the streets of Venice at all times. Yeah. Their timing couldn't be better. Nobody else is around. Laura goes and talks to the two sisters. She catches up to them and they invite her over for tea and she gladly accepts. But John, on the other hand, refuses to go. He is like, nope, sorry, I'm not going. Well, and when he sees them and he does see his wife like approach them and strike up the conversation, he's after hearing the whole story, he's already suspect. Uh, He's already suspicious of, these two women and what BS are they telling his wife? He, you can tell he doesn't want her to appease her and let her, 
you know, keep feeding into this, what he sees as delusional mentality. So after she chases after them, he's handling this gigantic stone statue, trying to mount this statue. And uh, <laughs> his anxiety in this situation, because you could see he's just so distracted, um, it, 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 it it's palpable. Like, you can feel it. He's so frustrated, but he can't do anything about it because he's working with these, like, kind of bumbling Italians who don't really know what they're doing. So he has to, like, keep his attention with the statue, and that's what kind of allows his wife to get away and follow after the two women, and they go and they uh, stroll together and start talking about exactly what happened to Christine. Yeah, they go. Chris, uh, Laura goes to their apart, their hotel room, and they have pictures of all these children on their nightstand. And we find out that Wendy's son, what's his name, Wyatt, Wyatt or Wade or something, has Angus. His name's Angus. Angus was Wendy's son. He he died. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So she can kind of relate to the grief that um, Laura's feeling. Although she says to her, well, yeah, it sucked, but I just had two more. And you probably could too, if you know what I mean. And I'm like, that's kind of a rude thing to tell a mother that's grieving over. Just have two more kids to make up for the one you that drowned in your front yard. It's very cold. It is very cold. And this is, again, this is what is really brilliant about this film and how the direction kind of confuses you or misleads you into characters intentions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, another few examples of really great usage of both audio and editing. Um, they use some really prominent church bells over some of these conversations and they're just really, um, it's stark. There's not always a lot of score. Sometimes you have a lot of like, intentional silence filling up these moments, but there's a lot of really just distinct noises, the clicking of heels on the, the cobblestone when they're walking around outside and so forth. And, and it really plays factor in some of these moments as these scenes are developing. Um, but, uh, you know, again, we're cutting back and forth and there is this really distinct cut um, that comes up of the two women just cackling maniacally to each other and yeah these are the moments that you really start to suspect there's something we don't know going on and it's little things like this they just start laughing and it is like a hearty like they they are having the time of their life and you don't know why because of the way the cut falls into play you don't know why but it does not seem necessarily good and there's even like a low tone kind of under it that just amplifies that like discomfort. Um, and these are all very specific choices that the direction and the team made. I'm curious about why, because they do maintain this whole idea that these two women are plotting something. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, even when the film ends, I'm not sure what their t- intentions are or what their motivation truly was. It kind of leaves it open ended, but we will get there. Be- then there is there is one there is a scene when when Laura is at their apartment where Heather has one of her sort of episodes where she like she's seeing she's having a vision of about John and she like starts rubbing her breasts. Real vigorously, just screaming, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And why are you making – she is squeezing them. She's twisting them. She's manhandling her her knockers. <laughs> and there's like a shot – like, it, again, another awkward cut where like it cuts over to like what's going on with 
um, John mounting that statue, and then it cuts back, and Heather's just standing up, groping her bosoms, and the other two women are just sitting there, like, looking at her, like, uncomfortable, but not sure what to do, and it's... It doesn't have much, like, explanation as to why things are progressing this way. You learn she's really actually having a very intense kind of, like you said, episode or attack that come about when she can't, I'm assuming come about when she has, like, a a moment with a a deceased individual, a vision. A vision, yeah, because she does, she makes the comment that Christine, you know, is, is trying to warn them that John's life is in danger if they stay in Venice. So Laura, of course, goes back to their hotel and she tells John, Hey, Heather, the psychic said that your, your life is in danger. If you stay here, we need to get out of here. She wants, she wants to leave. She's like, we, we need to go. And he is like, not affected by it at all. He's like, no, um, and this is the scene where he really erupts at her. It's like the first time that we see him actually lose his temper at her because she sa- she mentions that Christine Christine came to her and said that, you know, your life's in danger. And he erupts and is like, our daughter is dead, 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 just screams at her. Uh, and it's kind of this moment that we've really never seen from him, his character before, get this sort of angry and uh, verbally abusive or abrasive towards his wife he's generally been very sweet very understanding to her and leading up to this he's been waiting for her he's kind of appeasing her letting her have this conversation with the women um and he's yes and now it changes he's He's like nope yeah he's been drinking at a bar and there's that whole sequence where he i now this is honestly troy i i'm still having watched this a few times i'm a little thrown off by what what uh, this sequence actually is and i want to hear like what you think this is so when he's drinking and he's getting drunk because he when he erupts on her he's actually he's like three sheets to the wind he's pretty wasted Mm -hmm. he walks into that dark location where he's ringing the bell and does he assume he's in his hotel is he in a different location is he in the wrong hotel because those two men come out and start yelling at him in italian you know what i mean Oh, yeah, you're right. I think what I thought was he was he's actually looking for Laura. He's at their hotel and he was trying to find their room Um, because there is a scene where he's out in the hallway Mm -hmm. of this hotel and you could hear while he's out in the hallway, you can hear the character of um, what's her name? Heather screaming. And I think he hears that, too. So he's trying to find her room. And he's ringing the bell to try to get someone's attention, either uh, Laura's or theirs. And then those guys come out and chase him out. I thought that he was at their hotel and he was trying to find Laura. That's what I gathered. Maybe. I'm yeah, sure. no, you're, you're right. You're right. You're, you are right. It's one of those, again, it's one of those scenes that is um, very shadowed and it's played in a very, um, uh, I use the word, I mean, disorienting is the the word of the day with this one. And they do it in a way where you're almost kind of, like it's intentional and I don't even mind that I don't know exactly what's going on because parts of it are in Italian and, you know, I, I you're supposed to feel the way he does, which is kind of overwhelmed and not sure what's going on. So they do a really good job with it. But yeah, I, I almost, I was thrown off a little bit. So thank you for clarifying with that. But he does end up getting wasted. He does. But well, and he even tells her, you're going to stop seeing the, the sisters and you're going to get back on your pills. 
So, and he even gives her the pills to take right then and there. Oh, he's so dismissive of her because she's even saying like, maybe you're right. Maybe I should stop talking to them. He's like, yup. And she's like, maybe I should get my pills. He's like, yup. yup. And then he, he, like, then he <laughs> gets he up, up right and over. gives them to her. He's like, here, yeah. take them right now, bitch. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then as they're, as they're getting ready for bed, the phone rings and it is the headmaster at little, their son, little Johnny's school. And you get the you get the mail the 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 mail headmaster trying to bumble his way through telling them what has happened, and finally the female gets on the phone and she basically what we find out is that Johnny little Johnny has had an accident, he fell hit his head, uh, and Laura right away is like I'm going to catch the next flight home, and. So they, Laura flies back to London to be with their son and yeah. John refuses to go. She, she tries to get him to go. She's like, this is our opportunity. We can leave Venice. This is our opportunity to just get back home and we can leave this all behind. He refuses. Yeah. He seems very um, distant from this whole everything right now. Uh, you really start to see his character go through a shift around this point of the movie. Um, when she starts going through this kind of evolution she's having, with uh, spawned by these two women, you know, um, and this whole acceptance of this whole thing with uh, her daughter, you know, it, it's it does cause him to start changing as well. And not for the better, you know, he's definitely becoming... Um, he's struggling with something and it's starting to, it's bubbling up to the surface and you see all these moments of it. Um, I do want to acknowledge that when he hands her a pill and he walks away, she does hide her pill under her sleeve. So she doesn't actually take her pill. Uh, it's not really touched on much, but it is acknowledged and it's specifically shown there. Um, but so she, she goes off, he sees her off. She takes a boat, uh, she's obviously not necessarily thrilled that he's not going, but he has a job to do. And I do have to say the job that they chose for him in this movie is it's so intricate and specific. And it's like it perfectly plays into the story. Uh, they pay, they pick such a very um, detail-oriented job for him to have. And it really goes well with his personality. Um, and... Because of this job that he has and the location it's set in, it allows for some really great, unique sequences of events to transpire. It's this old church in this old town um, where they don't have like great up-to-date equipment, and it's just very like grungy and gritty, and he's preserving this whole church. And one of the things he's doing is he's looking for like very specific little pieces of tile to recreate this mural. Um, and so they seem to have found the tile that they need. So he has to go up and match it to the mural that, that he wants to use it for. And so he ascends what is definitely the most like shoddy, poorly constructed scaffolding <laughs> I've ever seen. Yes. I mean, I he's would, got balls. Yeah, no way I would be on that. Oh, uh, I'm scared of heights, so right away that'd be a nope. Somebody else and like there. it's it's swinging, it's like rocking, it's making noises, it's creaking, and it's doing everything ominous thing that <laughs> you would anticipate from scaffolding that would collapse. And lo and behold, it does collapse in a very well executed scene that again lends to what I said earlier: finding the horror in moments that really are not horror based. Um, a giant piece of wood goes 
collapses from one of the beams, and it brings all the scaffolding down. And the sequence is long and drawn out, and it's filled with panic. People are screaming in Italian. He's hanging off of ropes. He's losing ropes. He's screaming. He's spinning. They're prodding him with poles, trying to get him to swing back and forth so they can grab him. I mean, it gives me such anxiety watching this sequence. Yeah, I did not care for this. I care. It's great. I'm just like, it was very intense. And I was like on the edge of my seat, like, what the hell? I, I yeah the 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 point where they where they start um like taking these long poles and like poking him with it so he swings farther out so that they can grab him I was like that's a point where I was like oh god I can't imagine this be, being poked with these things and uh, but he gets yeah. he gets back on the ledge he gets he gets saved and he basically tells the bishop you know that oh my god my wife was right she warned me that I was in danger and that this was going to happen. And lo and behold, it happened. So maybe there's something to what she's been saying. And at the same time, as they're walking the streets of Venice, it's one of the first times that you see other people out on the streets. They come across a crime scene. There is a boat uh, with a crowd of people around it, and they are pulling a, another dead body out of the canal. But we actually see it this time. We see we see in all the glory them pulling this dead female yeah. body out of the canal, and it's just another. Again, there's some serial killer that's stalking the canals of Venice. And as they're pulling out this dead body, the, you do get like flashbacks of uh, Christine, him pulling Christine out of the the pond. So it's very parallel. Uh, and he's like, I got to get out of here. Uh, and it's he gets back on a barge to head back to his hotel. And as he's going on the barge, there is a, another boat that's coming by. And on it, he sees... The two sisters and Laura, Awful all dressed, party, all dressed in black. It's like a funeral procession, and he starts screaming for her, and she does not answer him at all. Yeah, she just glides by with those two sisters, and doesn't make any kind eye contact with him or anything. And so, of course, he pursues after them, uh, but he's on a boat, so he can only do so much. But eventually, he gets off the boat and he rushes back in that direction and he's not able to find where they've gone, but he's obviously convinced where that it was them. I mean, he saw them. It's very clear. It's not just a, uh, a hint of her face. Like he sees the three of them very prominently sail by. Yeah. He goes back to their hotel restaurant and asks if his wife has been back. And the guy's like very dismissive and is like get, trying to get him out of the, and he's like, no, we're closed. We're closed oh, yeah. for the winter. We're closed. He, that guy does not want him there at no, all. No, he's such a dick. He is a dick. And then as he's walking, now the streets of Venice are completely empty again. And he is walking and he comes across this like creepy baby doll that's like floating in the water and he goes and picks it out of the water and puts it back. And again, it's just isolated Venice in this film. You would not think anybody lives there. It is so deserted. It's so isolated. It's, it's creepy. It's It's very crude. There's a crudeness to all of it. Well, when they pull the body out of the water, 
Um, they, even the way they do it, it looks like the, the, the scene in Jaws where they pull the shark out by the <laughs> like it's so like the body's upside down, it's tied by the ankles. Her dress is over her like hung like it's you know she's upside down, so her dress is just upside down. Her panties are revealed. Like there's a crudeness and a um, a um, preserved in time element that you get from this area. Well, Venice, the city itself in this film, at least, like I said, I've never been, is very like deteriorating. Mm -hmm. Like all of the buildings are, you know, brick, these brick buildings, but the brick is like crumbling and nothing is, everything is very old looking. Everything is very, like I said, uh, bad shape. Buildings are, are crumbling. Buildings are discolored. It's not a pretty city at all in this film. It, it, again, it's very crude, very, um, uh, just grimy and grungy. grimy and just a place that I would not want to be. Uh, and John makes the decision to go to the police station to file a report uh, about his wife because he feels like she has been maybe like kidnapped by these two. I didn't get this part. He feels like maybe these two old ladies have kidnapped him. And he gets, he even gets the police department to make sketches Mm-hmm. Of the two sisters, some of the worst some portraits of the- <laughs> I've ever seen. Um, I, you know, what I think it is, Trey. I think it's what he's suspecting is that these women are using her mental fragility, kind of, to kind of manipulate her for something. You know, you get that, yeah, with his conversation with the uh, with the officer, where he is, he goes to the officer's office and. Tells the officer his wife's missing and that these two women were the last people that she's been seen with. And he even tells the officer that my wife is sick and I feel like they're they're doing something to her. At the same time, the officer looks out the window and guess – and who's walking fucking by? Those two fucking cackling hens. Let me say this. And you know it's – I got to say this. <sighs> There's a lot of things in this movie that – hint at an ulterior motive with the women, the sisters. And this scene, to be honest, is one of the ones that stands out to me to make me think that there is something else going on. And what it is, what it really is to me is honestly, it's the detective. After he sees the women, you see a very distinct shift in his approach and his delivery and his dialogue. And it very much seems like there is something else, something unspoken that he knows, something of influence over him. Uh, and even I almost, I, I, I almost took away a vibe of like a spell being cast over him. You know, like something. He looks out, he sees them, and instantly you see, you even hear the tone of his dialogue just changes. It almost sounds as though. Are these women speaking for him? Is he in a trance? Like it's. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm not saying that is my even theory on what's happening here. But there's something that shifts and tonally shifts in this moment. I agree, and it just how how coincidental is it that they walk by at the same moment that he is in John is in this police station making this report about them? I feel like the odds of that happening are very slim. Well, he even starts drawing on 
the portraits, like cha like you know, drawing on the faces, and it looks like he's taking notes, but he's like actually like giving them eyebrows and everything. He's stuttering and stumbling through his dialogue. He's super dismissive of John, uh, and he the questions he starts to or the the statements he starts to throw at John, and the questions very much start to just imply to John that what John is kind of feeding him is nonsense and bullshit. Now, that very well could just be who this officer is, but I'm sorry, after this scene, he is one of the most suspicious people in the whole movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, we know that there's a killer on the loose because John even tells him, I'm also concerned about my wife because she is uh, not a well woman and we have a killer on the loose. So I, I, I need to, I want to locate her and I need to know why these two women have her. And again, you're right, the officer's very dismissive and he even like starts to act like he's very he becomes suspicious of john it seems because when john leaves the police station these this officer has him followed like there is a police officer that's literally following john now through the streets of venice and as john is kind of walking back to his hotel room there is like intercuts with this police officer following him like watching him and we do get a scene of john seeing now again that red figure under a bridge, standing there, and as he catches it, as as he looks at it, it darts away again. Uh -huh. uh, it's broad daylight, so it's even more like just what the hell? Is he knows that? he saw it. Yeah, what he knows. Uh, yeah, there's no question that he saw it. No, that we no, it's there. Yeah, but what? Who is it? Right, and, but in, in the dark, the first time he saw it was dark and shadowed, um, and. Uh, for just a split second. The second time he sees it, now he's really starting to... It's clear that John suspects something is going on and he's pursuing it. Whether it be involving his wife or his child or whatever, he's he's in it now. You know, he's, he's in it now. And um, so this kind of really develops, like, the final chunk of the movie, which is John's pursuit of what is going on what what is the mystery here yeah john goes to the hotel room where the sisters were staying and it's empty they are no longer there they they they, they are long gone the room is empty it's been clean they're they're not there so you're and it's intercut with them finding another hotel room again suspiciously placed john calls uh johnny's school and asks about how Johnny's doing, and the headmistress is like, "Oh, he's good. He's going to be perfectly fine. It was just a—it's just a little bump on the head." Oh, by the way, your wife is here. Do you want to talk to her? This phone conversation, man. As soon as you get the twist that she's there having the having the combo with the kid, um, threw me for a loop. It threw me for a fucking loop because all of a sudden it's very clearly just handed to you as the viewer that things are not as he suspects that there is in fact something going on that there's no way he could have seen her because she is on the other line but they still edit it in a set uh in a way that gives it if still an element of suspicion uh it does some really unique close-ups on her and her mouth when she's talking that even though you're seeing the footage of her having the conversation with him over the phone you still question is she actually where she claims to be well, yeah, and even his reaction on the phone is like, he is not, he's not even kind of like buying it. He's like, I swear I saw you. And, and she's like, well, I'm going to be in at nine o'clock. My flight leaves at nine. I'll be in at 11. We can have, and he is just like, just, he's super confused. He's just agreeing now 
to to agree and it, it's basically like just this giant what the fuck moment for him where he finally gets her off the phone and he's like what the hell i i know i saw her so now he has to go back to the police station to say well guess what never mind my wife is actually in london but at the police station they have heather sitting in a room they've brought her in and she is super confused she doesn't know what's going on she's like i don't know this place i just want to go home they came to our hotel room and arrested us and brought us in and questioned us about our your wife and john's like i'm so sorry i'm so sorry about this let me take you home and he proceeds to get her and and walk her home and there's this kind of the scene of this them two walking through venice and she is like talking about how she loves venice she loves it because it's easy for her to walk around because she can hear the canals and the water and it helps her be able to know where to go. And But then she makes a comment, well, my sister hates, hates it here. She says it's like people from an old party came here and died. She hates the shadows. She, she hates, hates the shadows. Yeah. And I do feel like... Uh, leading up to this point, you know, the audio in this movie has been so prominent and almost amplified in certain moments. And I love that there's a direct acknowledgement of this heightened reality almost. In some of these moments, the the sound is just very um, stand out. You know, there's not necessarily always score, but amidst the silence, you'll hear either the, you know, sound of cobblestone or breaking glass or church bells and it always seems just a little more amplified uh very prominent in these situations and you know thinking of the situation with heather being blind and hearing this dialogue it seems very intentional that they um handled the sound over the course of this movie the way they did uh it was a very strategic decision i feel yeah well he he goes back to the hotel with her they're at a new hotel and now Laura's back in town and she gets picked up by this guy who's taking her on a boat. Uh, so now we know for a fact that that was that Laura was not in Venice when John, that was not Laura that he saw. It couldn't have been because she literally, we see her get off a plane <laughs> and now she's on this boat. They take her, her to the police station because that's where John's supposed to be, even though they don't know that he left. So she's at the police station. Uh, and she has this kind of weird, awkward conversation with that officer. He like writes something like writes the address of the hotel of the sisters on the back of the sketch. And she like looks at the sketch and she's like, this looks nothing like her. And the officer looks at her and says, it doesn't matter. I'm like, what? And then she's like, oh, it doesn't. And he's like, no. She's like, oh, Okay. It just, again, makes, just adds this kind of air of suspicion to him, gives him, gives him that extra layer of, of what the hell is this guy in on something? What is the deal here? And the choices of these little moments, like this, this specific little tidbit of dialogue, it doesn't matter, only adds in my mind, the fuel to the fire that the idea that the sisters are somehow supernatural and connected to this, you know what I mean? Like whatever it is, would be a witchcraft or that they're psychics or what have you. I feel they have an influence over aspects of this film that we may not necessarily know as viewers. We may have to find out for ourselves. Maybe it's as we really start to realize who he is and the potential powers he has. Is that something that they really, I mean, they acknowledge it. Heather acknowledges it at one point. Heather acknowledges that John has these powers she says it 
she acknowledges it. And so is that a factor into why they're targeting him? Why they think he's of interest? You know, I mean, there are questions start to form that don't necessarily get answered and we will, you know, as we will get into, but there's a lot of, a lot to pick apart here. We did skip over that part. One of the things that Heather tells um, Laura earlier in the film is that John does have these psychic powers, but he's unaware of them and doesn't know how to necessarily use them. Um, So that gives us kind of this extra layer of, well, you know, what he's seeing, it kind of makes sense in a sense that it is, is it real or is it not? Because if he has a psychic ability, then obviously he has the potential to see visions and premonitions. Uh, So back in the hotel room, basically John's gets ready to leave and Heather starts having one of the, having this major seizure, major episode. It's almost, it's seizure like John is left and she starts like screaming to go fetch him. She just is like, go, go back and fetch him, go fetch him back, go fetch him back. She's just screaming bloody murder. Uh, it's very visceral, very violent. She's flailing on the floor. She falls off the bed and is flailing between the two beds, just screaming, go fetch him, go fetch him. Wendy tries to go after him, but he is gone. Uh, Laura shows up and they go back into the room and Heather's like, you need to go find John to Laura. And, but she's much more calm this time. It's real odd. She's almost again, pleasant about it. She's got the smile on her face. Again, Heather being more terrifying than a serial killer. Uh, She's like pushing. She's literally pushing Laura out the door. She's like, no, go find him. Go on, go find him. Mm -hmm." Like nodding her off. It's, it's, it's the whole scene of her having this attack. is just gives me the heebie jeebies. I mean, Wendy's like at one point, even putting her fingers in her mouth, you know, trying to keep her mouth open. So she's not swallowing her tongue. Like it is, like you said, it's very visceral. Um, but when she recovers from it, she seems unfazed. It's, it's very strange, but it's, it's enough to get Laura to take off, to take off after, um, after John. And we enter this running sequence. That's very, uh, filmed in a very distorted and nightmarish way. I mean, it all kind of builds and culminates in this this pursuit, which John is running through the town, chasing after what he, you know, he believes could possibly be at this point his daughter. Yeah, he sees on the way back. He he sees the red figure, and so he begins to pursue it with with the with the thought that it is his daughter, because he even says, "Oh, baby, b- baby, please stop." You know, he he's very much uh, believes that this could be his his daughter, which is just heartbreaking. You know, I mean, you have to know. No, you, I mean, you, it's just heartbreaking because you he, this poor character just hasn't come to terms with the fact that his daughter is, is dead and this grief that's been unchecked is leading him to his own demise. Because anybody in their right mind would know that that pulled their dead daughter out of a pond and buried her, that this thing, this little thing in a red jacket running through the streets of Venice at night is not your daughter. And you should probably not run after it. Yeah, And it's so interesting to see, you know, he was so resistant to allowing his wife to find her peace with this through, you know, whatever means, you know, you know, whether or not he found it was uh, acceptable, you know, she found a way to start moving past this. 
But in that, he himself has kind of reverted and is now himself going through the process of questioning, doubting, uh, really letting this loss be all-consuming for him. Because, yeah, he, he is at this point, he is thinking that this very well could be his daughter. And, and this is definitely triggered by, you know, what has gone on with his wife, what has happened over, transpired over the last few nights or so. Um, but uh, like I said, it does become very nightmarish. It becomes very surreal. Laura's chasing after him, jumping over boats and everything, trying to reach him. You get a lot of, like, really unique, cool smoke shots of people moving through through the foggy streets and uh, the shadow play and everything. And he eventually goes into this kind of tunnel system where he finds the hooded figure in a room crying. And she sounds, it sounds like his daughter, you know, it sounds like she's weeping and you're getting inner cuts of the daughter, you know, her face and everything as well. So you can see that he's overcome with this grief. He's overcome with these memories. Uh, and it's all kind of bringing him to confront this hooded figure. And this all builds up and leads to, I would say, one of the most satisfying conclusions um, of a film of the genre, but also a completely unexpected moment for anyone who has not seen this film. What happens here completely just throws you for a fucking loop. Yeah, no, if you haven't seen this film, stop and watch it, because we're about to do spoiler to end all spoilers. Uh, but you are right. The lead up to this is is very atmospheric because the whole all the tu- all the long corridors and tunnels are just swarming with with fog, and the characters are running through it. And yeah, the little figure is is in a she like ran into an abandoned church. It's like in a room in an abandoned church, and when he gets to her or this figure standing in the corner, like literally standing in the corner, almost like it reminds me of like the Blair Witch Project. You know, mm-hmm. the end of the Blair Witch mm-hmm. Project when Heather, coincidentally, Heather, the character of Heather, goes down into the basement and sees Mike standing in the corner. Very much similar. This character is, uh, this little red thing is standing in the corner and um, John comes in and he is, you could, he's beaming. He's like, oh baby, come here. I'm not going to hurt you. We're friends. We're friends. I'm a friend. And the thing turns around. Listen, it is not what you expect, okay? Again, if you have not seen this, turn this off, go watch it, and pick it back up. The hood turns around and it reveals a very small and very freakish... I mean, I I shouldn't use that term, but, like, they couldn't have found a more nightmare fuel woman if they tried <laughs> this i she's apparently a dwarf it's a dwarf she's she's very tiny but she has a face that you could i mean like i don't think there's a prosthetic on it it's just I don't know. <laughs> it is horrifying this woman is terrifying and she just looks at him and after he said, we're friends, she turns around and she shakes her head no, smirking, and she removes a butcher knife from her wee pocket. It's a meat cleaver. Yes. It's a meat cleaver. And she swings it at his fucking jugular vein. Yep. And what happens here is just, I mean, it, if you thought it was Nightmare Fuel beforehand, it goes into like a 
it goes into a, a death sequence that I can only really compare to like, I think a, a film that had to take some inspiration from this would have been like The Ring with the, the video being the collection of imagery that all ties into, you know, things that have occurred. Uh, it's like the opposite. This, you see a whole sequence of events play off where I think you're basically seeing everything he's realizing, everything he saw leading up to this that was kind of predicting this premonition. Um, you start to realize what it all is. And it's phenomenal, and it's emotional, and it's terrifying, and it's surreal, and it's cerebral, and there's blood pouring from his neck, and it's running down the walls of the church. And you realize all of these things are things he's seen before. The blood hitting the slide shots earlier in the movie very much symbolize little details on all of these different characters. It's the, Even the statue head bearing a resemblance to this woman's very difficult to look at face. Uh, so many little details, they're just thrown at you in a barrage of imagery and sound and score as he bleeds out. And it's honestly one of just the most overwhelming death scenes I can think of in an amazing way, in a great way. Yeah. Well, A, it looks very painful. B, yes, it's intercut with, with all of the flashbacks of what he has seen to lead up to this fate of his. And yeah, there's a scene where he's like starts convulsing and he kicks out the window uh, of this church and like the blood, his blood starts to f come out of the, the glass of the window and run down the side of the building. It's very just, oh, it, it's, it's a sight to behold. But yeah, this little, this little dwarf in a red raincoat has apparently is the one that's been killing all of these people in venice and yeah <laughs> it's like the last thing you would expect especially it being a small dwarf woman uh, i mean like out of all the of all the people to be committing these murders but like the reason it works is because of the whole psychic element the predicting like oh we're seeing your daughter we're seeing her red jacket we're seeing these very specific bits of imagery that still play in to what he's what his story is it's just being interpreted in a different way so the daughter i mean was the daughter actually warning them i don't i don't know but the seeing the red jacket were they predicting that he would see this specific visual um that would lead to his demise no matter what they saw they predicted something you know mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, so he is he 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 dies he dies, uh, and then the film just proceeds to end with his funeral, and we get a shot of the exact same thing he saw earlier in the film, which is his wife and the two sisters dressed in black on this funeral boat, and we realize, oh my God, that's what he saw. He saw his own funeral. Yeah, and then the credits roll. It's what a the, the haunting, haunting, impactful ending, and you can't stop watching it to the very last credit because it really like leaves you with this just lingering feeling of oh my god, I'm putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. I'm realizing exactly what I just saw. I'm realizing exactly what he saw and the reasons he saw it. He just never knew. He never knew. He never ever put together what he was witnessing was actually kind of a pre-warning for what was going to happen to him. 
Um, and I mean, and it just adds an extra layer of sadness to the whole thing that this could have been prevented in some way, shape, or form. Um, we never find out, you know, what happens with the killer. We never find out what the true intentions actually were behind the two women. You know, it leaves you on this note um, that kind of concludes with his death because there's nothing more to pursue. You know, with him dying and him realizing all these things, realizing that he did in fact have this gift of premonitions, I mean, he lost the opportunity to really explore that. Yeah, uh, it was his own his own inability to come to terms with with his daughter's d death and yeah i mean if he would have listened to his wife <laughs> then none of this would have happened and it is interesting that the film just ch chooses to end without explaining anything and i think that makes it more effective obviously i wouldn't want a real explanation but it just leaves you with the film leaves you with way more questions than it does answers because even like I still, like I mentioned earlier, I'm still not 100% sure what the intentions or the motivations of these sisters were because there is that part of the, of the film where when Heather is trying to push Laura out to go find John that she is very like smiling and very happy about it, almost like she knows what Laura is going to find. You know what I mean? And, and then as they are like floating down on his on that boat for his funeral, the two sisters are behind her and, you know, they look kind of, I don't know, they don't look too sad. I think the expressions on their face compared to hers are very like maybe pleased. I don't know. It just seems really awkward. So I, I don't know what their intentions were, what, what, the, you know, what any of it means in terms of what were they trying? Did they have something more? Did they have a connection to this dwarf killer? And what in the hell is this dwarf killer? Who, who is it? What? How is this little dwarf killer killing full-grown people and throwing their bodies in canals? Is what I want to know. But it's never explained. We don't never. We we're assuming she never gets caught. Um, right, and, and nor do I think it needs to be explained, considering how. Again, I mean, I said it earlier, this movie is a mindfuck, and I don't mean that in a bad way whatsoever. I mean that it's very intentionally playing off of your perceptions of what you think you're seeing and what you think you're watching and what you think you're understanding versus what you realize you don't know. Um, and, you know, for a first-time viewer, it's really going to throw you for a loop. But then you go back and you watch it again and you start to see things and you start to pick up on things. And, and like you said, you watched it three times. And I, I get why, because it's a movie that you comb through it and you pick up the pieces of the puzzle and you put them into the full picture and you, you try to get an understanding of what's going on. And um, I don't know. I don't think we as the viewers are supposed to have a crystal clear idea. All we know is that we leave with a feeling of sadness for this character because these aren't bad people at all by any means they actually seem to have a pretty loving relationship and have been through sad traumatic experience um and i feel for her and i you know i truly feel for him and i think he played that character with a very um a realistic and human take on loss and like you said grief and um it's just a movie that leaves you feeling a lot um it sticks with you Definitely, it sticks with you, and it's worth a revisit. Again, as I as as I said earlier, it's worth sitting down and watching multiple times because it's not. Um, this isn't popcorn fodder. This is fine cinema. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely not a popcorn film. Some, some, some may find the pacing to be a little uh, lagging. Uh, I've, but again, I think the payoff is is worth it, and I think that every scene in this film has a purpose if you're paying attention. It's definitely a film that's heavy on symbolism and very well intentioned and and constructed so that everything I think has a purpose. So while there may be some scenes that are drawn out and it may take some time to get to where it's going and the horror elements, let's be honest, are few and far between. I think that the film is, is expertly crafted and the payoff is definitely worth it. It, it, I am really kind of pissed off that I, saw the ending years ago so i knew what the ending was because i can't imagine watching this film for the first time and seeing that ending i feel like it would be way more impactful even though like i mentioned at the beginning of the podcast it was still impactful seeing it all put together but i can't imagine i mean watching this film for the first time and just having that ending come out of like almost nowhere and have it be so brutal to this character that we have followed throughout the entire film would have been just jaw-dropping yeah 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 exactly but i mean yeah if you, it's a film that i think stands the test of time it's probably doesn't get the credit it deserves although i do feel like it's been a very impactful film it's been a film that's definitely influential it's not one of those films that gets called out for being influential or that people recognize for being influential uh, i'd say it's very much in in terms of another film that i feel gets is maybe in the last five or 10 years has gotten maybe a little bit of the credit it deserves is like black Christmas. Uh, I feel like black Christmas is probably the most influential slasher film ever made even way above Halloween because black Christmas came out what four years before Halloween and Halloween basically copied black Christmas, but it's all about, Oh, Halloween, Halloween, Halloween is is the most influential. It's like this film, this film, you can definitely see how it influenced all of these other films, even films like the exorcist. I can see that there's definitely influences Mm -hmm. like the shots of the, the birds flying in front of the churches and the, the sounds of the, the and and another film that I think that influenced that this film influenced the omen. Oh my God. Definitely. So, I mean, but you won't hear that being said. So uh, definitely check it out because I do feel like it is it is one of the more influential f- horror films to in terms of style and storytelling mm-hmm. uh, and visual uh, visual storytelling, editing, editing to tell a story, editing to confuse the viewer, editing to cause uh, you know the viewer to question what's going on. This film did it before any film I could make of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy we watched it. And I, um, I am too. I, I, I like that it was very, um, different from the tone of our last few interviews. I like to keep balance. You know, I, I want to keep our listeners on their toes and make sure we're appeasing the masses. You got to give them a little bit of everything. But that being said, I know, I know the, the, the gays, the true fans of, of the genre are going to appreciate us taking the time to really, Oh, for delve sure. into this one because there's so much to talk about. Like, and we just spent a good hour and 45 minutes really dissecting this movie. But this is one of those films that I mean, I mean, I, I could have talked 
way more. Where I'm just sticking to a time frame so people don't fall asleep on us. But um, you know, I really I could get drunk and sit and talk about this movie for hours and hours because it's just that well done and it's just that thought provoking. Well, it's one of those films that depend. It depends, and we, there, we've talked about this with other films. But this is one of those films that, depending on what your what your life experience is, you're going to interpret it differently. Yeah. Um, but, oh yeah. I mean, oh, I think yeah. we did a great job of just basically, you know, touching on all of the elements of the film and 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 how they are constructed to lead us to the the climax and how jarring and, and kind of heartbreaking and and haunting it is. It's a film that you're going to think about after the credits roll for sure. And if we didn't touch on certain things, I'm sure our, our uh, lovely listeners will take a moment to let us know and maybe leave a comment or a thought, a tidbit for us uh, to maybe explore and start some discussion because this is definitely one that uh, I would love to chat about with some of our listeners. I know they're going to have some strong opinions, the fans of this film, and uh, maybe there are things that we didn't know. You know, I'm, I'm, I, uh, I do some research on these movies, but I'm not looking into like fan theories and I'm not, I'm not looking into like hardcore articles that are going to try to sp- sway me into thinking one thing i'm trying to you know dissect this movie for what do we take away from it and um but there very well could be other things that that we don't know about you know oh absolutely we missed it i i've never i've never read the short story i'm kind of really interested in in seeking it out and reading it same Uh, because again it's short and you know they they made a two-hour movie based off of of a short story so and i know that i do know in the short story the daughter does not drown she dies of tuberculosis, which is interesting considering like we talked about water being such a huge motif in this film. Uh, but I would be curious to read the short story. I think I'm going to seek it out and read it. But I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Same. I want to see what, what they took from it, uh, what elements remained. Mm-hmm. Because it seems so this, – this, as a piece of cinema – this seems so intentional, yeah. you know, but just like, you know, just like the Wizard of Oz, they made the silver, the silver slippers ruby for the movie because it worked better on camera. Did they choose to make it a water-based death because it worked better on camera? I mean, who knows? Who knows what choices they made to make the story roll better on film, you know? Yeah, you never know. But that was Don't Look Now. A classic. A classic, for sure, for sure. So, yeah. So, next week. (laughs) Next week, Roger. Next week. Next week. You know, I chose a film. And I chose it because it's it's summer. And summer's winding down. Right? And and what better activity to do in the summer than to go swimming? Uh, So... I chose. Sounds refreshing. Right now, it does sound refreshing because I turned my air conditioning off so that you don't hear the hum and I'm sweating. So I could use a good pool to jump into. So, speaking of that, the film that we are going to discuss next week, and I'm super excited because I know you've never seen it. And you know me and my slasher films, okay? Oh, I know you. <laughs> so this is a slasher film that's actually a post-Scream slasher film. You know, I know I usually pick stuff from the 80s, but this is a 2001 slasher film that I've never seen discussed on another podcast. And I am I think you're going to have a blast with it. And it is called The Pool. 2001. Straight to the point. <laughs> It is straight to the point, guys. And I, I swear to God, this—I swear to God, this film has a bigger following than you would think. It is a gory film. It's a brutal film. 
but it's a lot of fun and it has one of the best death scenes of any slasher film I've ever seen. Uh, so you're going to get a kick out of it. It's about a group of kids that go, that spend the night, break into an in, uh, indoor water park facility. Sign me up. Yes. And <laughs> they start getting killed off by a masked killer with a machete and he uses the machete in some very creative ways. So think about water slides, machetes, water parks, and it's all there. There's, It's a lot of fun. It's a movie that I know people know. I, I know a lot of gays love this film. It has James McAvoy. So handsome. Isla Fisher. The eerie clone version of, uh, what's her name? Who does she look just like? Oh, um... She looks like a lot of people. I think. Oh my god, the one that was in Enchanted. Oh, Amy Adams. Yeah, I, I've always thought Isla Fisher was the poor man's Amy Adams. I mean, I know a lot of people think that, but um, uh, I've never been a huge fan of her. So maybe this will change my opinion. Well, she's not in the movie very long. Okay, she? noted. So you don't have to put up with her. And Kristen Miller. Oh, Kristen Miller. Isn't Kristen Miller in um? Mm, fuck what is. Isn't she in another horror movie? She was in Cherry Falls. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Roger, you've never seen it. You're going to have a blast with it. And it's going to be... I just wanted to do something fun. After this serious thing that I had to watch three times to even understand what the fuck was going on, I wanted something a little more just like straight to the point. Slasherist that doesn't get talked about a lot. And hopefully we'll, we'll introduce some some young younger slasher fans to this film. Because even though it's a post-scream slasher film, what I really like about this film is that it's not tongue-in-cheek at all it does not go the comedy route it goes the straight slasher route and when i say roger this film is brutal it's fucking brutal i can't wait you've been talking this title up like obviously you know like i've told you uh, many times i wanted to do uh, yeah and i know a a few gays who hold this title in high regard um opinionated gays whom i I, you're talking about i know that their opinions um uh if they're going to hold this in high regard, it's going to have to at least serve some some quality in the in the death department for sure. Uh, expectations are high when it comes to these films, but I love nothing more than a film, uh, a slasher film that throws kids in a random venue. Me too. Uh, an unexpected well, venue. Well, we've covered a couple of them. Intruder with the grocery store, yeah. hide and go shriek with the uh, yeah. furniture store, and now the pool with an indoor pool. So, folks, check out the pool before our episode next week. Because we are going to have a blast with it. Yeah, absolutely. And also, let us know where you'd like to see a bunch of people be killed. I want to hear the most random place that you can imagine a slasher taking place. And who knows, maybe Troy will write it. Maybe I'll write it. It hasn't already been done. (laughs) But yeah, the pool. I can't wait. That's going to be a fun one. And I will say this, Troy. Next next episode that I pick a title, um, I'm not going dry and emotional. I'm going... I'm leaning a little into your territory. Let me just put it that way. So don't worry. It's not always going to be tears and sadness. But, oh, no, I like the variety. I do really do. I really like the variety. So it's, it's, we have and to, our listeners do too. Yes, we have to mix it up. We can't, we can't do the same thing every, every week. We can't do the same types of films. We've got to mix it up. Okay. Absolutely. So, yeah. So guys, thank you for tuning into don't look now. I keep wanting to say, um, that do a Lupa song. What is that? Don't start now. Don't, get home. don't look now. Don't. Don't walk away.
Don't look now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're, we may be podcasters, but we are not recording artists yeah, for a reason. Yeah. So we promise as long as you keep listening to this, we will record a single. <laughs> Till then, guys. <laughs> All right. Yes. Until next week, jump in your pools and get ready for some machete slicing fun. We're taking out summer in high style with the pool. The pool. All right, guys. Thanks. Leave us a review. Remember, five stars on Apple Podcasts. Yay. Okay. We will see you next week. Bye.